0: The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues. But please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Labrie Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Labrie Fellowship. Started. Here we are. I was telling Lauren the other day, we're the freshest library workers you're ever going to get. <laughs> we're all fresh out of a sabbatical, long planned before COVID hit. And we as a team were just this week saying how thankful we are for God's provisions throughout this summer, throughout our sabbatical, and we are likewise thankful that there are guests in the house right now. Well-spaced and just a few, but we are thankful. Thankful that you guys are here. And those of you who are joining us on Facebook Live, we are thankful you're with us in a way, too. Hearts set on pilgrimage. How walking might become your favorite spiritual discipline. It was hard to write this lecture while sitting. (laughs) It seemed almost impossible, like writing a lecture on fasting while vacationing in Italy. (laughs) I do often write while walking, actually, but maybe just short phrases or prayers or even parts of poems. I carry one of these little notebooks with me on most walks that I take, but never a whole lecture. So for this, I had to sit down to gather some thoughts on walking. I had to sit down and read books about walking. I had hopes that I would have spent a couple weeks walking on the Appalachian Trail this past summer before giving this lecture. That was our plan. But with COVID, campsites shut down, all the public bathrooms along the AT shut down, and so our plans were also shut down. So I don't have the miles that I hoped to have accumulated before giving this lecture, which is maybe just as well. It helps to emphasize that I am not coming to you as an expert This is more my kind of walking. (laughs) That's me and Dave and Cole and Fiona. Adam took the picture. That's why he's not in it. There is a huge resurgence of interest in hiking and in pilgrimages. And completing those can, of course, get you some street cred in certain niches. Uh, But as I've come to terms with my own lack of expertise before giving this lecture, I have asked if there are professional walkers. Race walking is an Olympic sport. (laughs) There are a lot of jokes on the internet about what it looks like to watch these people race walk, but it's amazing, too, what they're able to do. And I have heard of professional dog walkers, (laughs) but... Have you heard of this guy? <laughs> a few weeks ago, or sorry, a few years ago, this guy in l a started charging people to walk with them. seven dollars uh, an hour, I thought was his initial initial rate, and there was so much hubbub around him. He got interviewed on every major news outlet. So there are some professionals, but even given these people and their particular skills. Walking doesn't really have an elite. It isn't something you think of having mastered, at least not after your first birthday. (laughs) Though, people who walk early, or people whose children walk early, will let you know. (laughs) They'll probably tell you more than once exactly when their child walked, or when they did. (laughs) I did learn to walk, as you can see, at about my first birthday. I don't know exactly when. I didn't walk particularly early. I don't have any sponsors for my walks around Southboro. Nobody has ever paid me to walk. I haven't completed any impressive hikes, though I have spent a considerable amount of time walking and hiking. And I did get to walk in the Alps for years and loved it. That's Cole. He's a little bit younger mm-hmm. on the walk. A few more just for fun. That's near Interlaken. That's Dave in the corner. This mm-hmm. is near the Dante Midi. About halfway up. We enjoy walking stories, don't we? Who here has read some memoir about a long hike or about walking? Anybody? If you've read Lord of the Rings, you've read A Walking Story. I've read a bunch myself. Um, And though there seems to be a revival in walking and hiking memoirs, it's not really new. Does anyone know which book begins with these words? I walked through the wilderness of this world. That's the first line in Pilgrim's Progress. Published in 1678, and by the way, has never been out of print. Humans love stories about journeys on foot. So I want to tell you a walking story tonight, too. It's not a tale of surviving and thriving on the Appalachian Trail, like I thought I might have for you after this summer. This story is bigger than Cheryl Strayed, bigger than the Camino de Santiago. The walk is longer than any trail John Muir blazed and it's quite different from the walks of the Peace Pilgrim. Did you ever hear about her? The woman who walked more than 25,000 miles across the U.S. over a span of decades. I think she crossed the state seven times on foot entirely. The story I want to tell you is a story reminiscent of Much Afraid's Journey to the High Places, or Sam and Frodo's Trek to Mount Doom, and Christian's Pilgrimage to the Celestial City. The walking story that I'm going to tell you is big. It's literal and metaphorical. It's the story of the human race. Though for my purposes, maybe we should call it the human stroll, the human walk. In the beginning of this story, we are told God walked in his garden, the garden he planted. In Genesis 3, we read that he walked in the garden in the cool of the day and he seems to be looking for his humans as if this was their regular after-dinner stroll together. He had made humans uniquely upright physiologically, and it seems he walked with them in a way that he didn't walk with the cheetahs or the vultures (laughs) or the jellyfish or even the bear. It seems that God wanted to walk on earth In the garden, with his humans. As the animal kingdom began to quiet down and get ready for evening, and perhaps as a cool wind began to blow, the ones made uniquely in God's image, together with God himself, they walked and maybe talked about the day. Maybe they admired the plants and animals in their line of sight Maybe God revealed some of his plans for them. Maybe Adam kept telling God about the names he'd come up with for giraffes or blobfish. <laughs> we don't know. We don't know much about these walks, but listen to these words from Mark Buchanan in his new book, God Walk. He says about these early walks, it was all good, so very good. There was night, And there was day, and each new morning we rose and walked again. And then it all went tragically awry. Here, I think, is the saddest line ever written. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God. And they hid We've been hiding ever since. wary, skittish, hugging the shadows, wearing disguises, watching the exits. We have all become like Cain, restless wanderers, though many of us are sedentary versions of this, restless and listless both. Hiding from God, not walking with him. That's what happens here at the beginning. And what a boiled down description of the human race without his intervention. Hiding from God, not walking with him. In the scriptures, we find many different images and analogies and metaphors to describe life as a human in God's world whether we're enjoying his company or hiding in the bushes. These analogies, these metaphors are all true and all helpful. And I'm going to go through a few. I don't have a picture for each one. But think of this. Life as a human in the Bible, in God's world, is likened to being a sheep under the care of a shepherd. Life in the Bible is like being at a huge banquet. Okay, I will try. Turning up the volume. Life's like being at a huge banquet. Life as a human in God's world can be like being a weaned child with his mother. I was hoping Joshua would be here for that moment. That's his favorite song. It's like being a farmer. It's like being a wife who abandons her husband. It's like a war. It's like being hungry and thirsty. It's like fishing. It's like being on a trial being on trial, sorry, in a court case. It's like being a refugee, a barren woman, a beggar, a widow. Life in the Bible is like being a tree. Life is like vapor. It's like a box of chocolates. That, that was not in the Bible. I just had to throw it in there. That's Forrest Gump. The scriptures are so full of rich metaphors and similes for our imaginations. What is it like to be a human on God's earth in relationship with him or alternately running from him? It's like all these things and more. And if you know your Bibles at all, you know I barely touched on all the analogies that explain and express what it's like to be alive and to know and be known by God. In fact, it can be an interesting endeavor to come up with one yourself. What would you say life is like, even now? Is it like a pressure cooker? Is it like being in a small boat in a big storm? Is it like being in a circus? Like being in a wide-open, spacious place? Anybody have one that comes to mind you want to say? You can tell me later, (laughs) or you can put it in the Facebook messages. One of the best metaphors, though, this is going to come as a real shock, I'm sure. And one of the most pervasive in the Bible is walking. And isn't that very interesting, given Genesis 3, where the story begins? I think this is God's redemption at work all the way through the Bible Glimpsed in this metaphor, like God himself is longing to get back to those walks with his humans, as if the questions keep being asked, where are you? Will you walk with me again? It's beautiful. Walking is also one of the most available, most accessible metaphors to our senses, Right? Like it, it could be enlightening to imagine what it's like to be a tree. You don't have to imagine very much at all to consider walking as a metaphor. No matter our age, our country of origin, our financial situation, our education, our race, our gender, even the era in which we live, walking has remained pretty much the same. That's what I mean by it being available, accessible and no wonder walking is one of the primary ways we as humans have come to express unity and common purpose we walk for life we walk athon for all sorts of causes for the ending of diseases we march in cities across bridges and campuses we march on our capital Sometimes I think these kinds of walks are something of an admission that we don't know what to do. Granted, we are sometimes practically raising money or awareness, but it's like we know things need to change. We know we want to be a part of that change, so we just get moving, literally, physically. We walk, and we walk side by side with neighbors and strangers alike. In Rebecca Solnit's book, Wanderlust, A History of Walking, she writes, as a person who doesn't profess faith, that walking makes it possible to move towards goals that are otherwise so hard to grasp. We are eternally perplexed by how to move toward forgiveness or healing or truth, but we know how to walk from here to there. I decided this past summer to study the book of Proverbs, mostly because I have two teenage sons, and the book explicitly says, my son, my son, and I have been hungry for parenting wisdom. It, of course, also applies to young women and to older women like myself. The way I tend to read the Bible is seasonal, whether it's Following the natural season or the church season, I will set a goal for myself to, say, read the Minor Prophets during Lent, or the Gospels during Advent, or I'll spend winter in the Psalms, or like this past summer, I spent it in Proverbs. There are 31 chapters in Proverbs, so it lends itself to being read within a month. And I just decided when I got to the end of the month, I'd go back to the beginning and start again, a chapter a day. So I read it through several times, and I'm still I'm still reading Proverbs. I will admit that I used to think of Proverbs as a collection of maybe random sayings, wisdom sayings for sure. But I haven't had much of a sense of how or why they're organized as they are. I am beginning to see that these sayings are indeed masterfully set beside each other. In fact, I keep in my mind um, an image very similar to those walkers I just described. Neighbors and strangers alike. The Proverbs feel similar to me in that way. Sometimes the organization is clear and readily makes sense. But then other times you think, now, why are these two next to each other? So even given those questions of mine and questions that you might encounter, too, if you take to reading the Proverbs, I am finding wisdom at work in this book and in myself as I walk with these collected sayings for a season. One of the simplest tools for realizing these kinds of things, like the organization that's going on in a book of the Bible, is simply to look for repetition and practice repetition, too. Read it more than once. I've said it before in teaching on the Bible, and I have a feeling I'm going to keep saying this. If the author took the pains to repeat something, you want to pay attention. Remember how the scriptures were first written down. There wasn't extra space to fill in with needless repetitions. There is a purpose to every repetition. Repetition, pay attention. Repetition, pay attention. I just keep simple things like that in my mind when I'm reading the Bible. So while reading Proverbs this summer, I quickly found this dynamic image of walking. Paths, ways, steps, and feet are repeated and repeated and repeated. Now, about a year ago, I did a lecture on the image of God's hands through the Bible. And before that, I did a lecture on eyesight in the Bible. So I think I might be more and more attuned to every body word that I find in the scriptures, which is fine. I love it. But this repetition of of roads and paths and ways became in my imagination. As I read through Proverbs, this sort of mega metaphor, stretching over the whole book of Proverbs. It's not in every single corner, but it is pervasive enough to be called a theme, for sure. It's like it was writ large across the book in my mind. According to Proverbs, this is what it's like to be human, to be on a walk. You are... Going somewhere in the book of Proverbs, in your body, with your body. You're not alone. There are other walkers. There are multiple roads. There are people talking and yelling. There are dangers and snares, invitations to get off the path, encouragements to persevere. There's rough terrain, hills, valleys. There are rewards Shelters, scenery changes, companions change. God is with you on the road. All of this happens in Proverbs. I will bet that many of you are familiar with uh, the verses in chapter 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding in all your... Ways acknowledge him or submit to him and he will make your paths straight or and he will direct your paths. These synonyms translated ways and paths are utilized and reutilized throughout Proverbs in a way that can fill your imagination with a dynamic picture. Here are a few. Wisdom will save you from the ways of wicked men who have left the straight paths to walk in dark ways, whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. Keep to the paths of the righteous. Blessed are those who find wisdom, who is personified as a woman. It goes on to say, her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. My son, I instruct you in the way of wisdom and lead you along straight paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hampered. When you run, you will not stumble. There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. Stern discipline awaits anyone who leaves the path. The one who hates correction will die. Do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evildoers. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn from it and go on your way. Wisdom says, leave your simple ways and you will live. Walk in the way of insight. Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but whoever takes crooked paths will be found out. A person's steps are directed by the Lord. How then can anyone understand their own way? Listen, my son, and be wise. Set your heart on the right path. And then one we memorized as a family this summer on one of our day hikes on the Appalachian Trail. Give careful thought to the paths for your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or to the left Keep your foot from evil. This isn't every reference to roads or walking in Proverbs, but you can see how strong a current it is in the book. And it's not unique to Proverbs. It's all over the Bible. The Psalms begin with, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked. It's the very first verse of the very first psalm. I love how Paul seems to be responding specifically to this psalm in Galatians 5, when he says we should keep in step, not with the wicked, but with the spirit, exactly. I'm jumping ahead a little bit to mention Paul, but let's remember Enoch, who is said to have walked with God. Think of how central in redemption's history is the Israelites' long and roundabout walk. the promised land and the prophets use this metaphor Isaiah's in chapter 30 Isaiah says whether you turn to the right or to the left your ears will hear a voice behind you saying this is the way walk in it I know what Mandalorian fans are thinking right now (laughs) this is the way (laughs) and remember Jeremiah is beautiful but very sad from chapter 6 Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. But you said we will not walk in it. And Micah's reverberating question, what does the Lord require of you? Listen to what Mark Buchanan again in God Walk what he says about this question. It's simple and personal. God wants us to love mercy and to do justly. And then Micah throws in a third thing. Or maybe it's the one thing needed, the single activity that makes the other two possible, to walk humbly with your God. And then the Gospels, especially Mark. Man, have I been slow to realize that Jesus was ever on the road, walking. There are a lot of cheesy pictures on the internet about Jesus walking with his disciples, or trying to portray that. This one I dig, this one I like. It's not quite as dynamic, and it's not Jesus, because he has a book definitely bound by a printing press. (laughs) But I still like what it gets across. If Jesus had access to a Tesla or the commuter rail or a jet or even a chariot of his own, would that have been his preferred mode of transportation? It seems to me it wasn't simply that Jesus couldn't find another way of getting around or that it was something of a shame that he came when he did and was forced to do all that walking. Rather, I see Jesus intentionally embodying, walking those ancient paths that Jeremiah spoke of. Jesus took up those garden walks with his father, but he didn't rebel and didn't hide. Jesus walked with God like Enoch. He walked humbly like Micah commanded Jesus rewalked Israel's pilgrimage in the wilderness to the promised land. He walked into the same waters, but didn't come out terrified looking over his shoulder at an Egyptian army, but with a voice from heaven and the Holy Spirit descending. Jesus obeyed every Proverbs plea to stay on the path of wisdom. As one who had no place to lay his head, he took on the march of the exiles all the while beckoning Israel to come back, to come home, to Yahweh. Jesus walked to the tomb of a friend, and with ferocity and grief, he called on Lazarus to stand up and walk again. He carried all of this and more physically in his very muscle and bone. He carried it through the towns and deserts of Galilee, of Judea, to a well in Samaria, through the streets of Jerusalem, up the hill to Golgotha. Hearkening back to Abraham and Isaac, he walked the last mountaintop to the final altar. Jesus walked, y'all, and invited people to follow him. He still invites you and me to follow him. If you've ever been a part of a Stations of the Cross event or prayer time, it is an attempt to get ourselves into a walk with Jesus. This was a work of art done by a wonderful artist at our church around Easter. She did a whole series of the Stations. They're still available online, actually. Her name's Madeline. This was the ninth station as Jesus encounters the women in Jerusalem. Stations of the cross, they can be a powerful remembering and a kind of reenacting of his steps. Jesus walked, literally. His walking also fulfilled ancient walks. And he also used walk to mean a way of life, much like Proverbs. Listen to what he said in John 8. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, which is a total throwback to Proverbs. The paths are always dark and light. We'll never walk in darkness, but we'll have the light of life. Now, I know some Christians are tired of the metaphor, (laughs) tired of phrases like your walk with God, or walking the walk, or your Christian walk. These phrases can feel like Christianese, like vernacular, only for the initiated and inconceivable to the outsider. But this metaphor abounds in the scriptures. I don't know how we're going to get away from it. I'm not sure we should. And it's not only pervasive in the Bible, it's beautiful. And I hope to help you see something of that tonight. This metaphor is healthy and helpful. It's winsome and it's challenging. If you are annoyed with those phrases, maybe you could switch it up a little. And talk about counting your steps with Jesus. I don't know. <laughs> this is what people do when they talk about a journey or a path, I think. We could even try to get back to what early Christianity was called. The way. This way was recognized as a new path, but treading ancient territory. <clears throat> Jesus charged his followers to go, to take the good news to their neighbors and beyond their own town. It was a call to movement, to getting out there, to going someplace new, and it was, of course, also a new way of life. Many New Testament authors continued to use these words, walk, way, path, steps, to describe life in Christ. In Romans 6 and Romans 13, we hear about walking in newness of life. Let us walk as in the daytime. Now, I have been reading the NIV for the past five or six years. I really like the NIV for the most part, but I don't care for what they do with these. They turn them and others into a let us live as in the daytime, live in newness of life, Mm -hmm. which I think is sad. It's the same word that's used when Jesus tells some paralyzed people to stand up and walk. It's a very bodily word. It's not to be abstracted into just living life. So I don't love that about the NIV, but the words that are there are really walk in newness of life. Let us walk as in the daytime. In Ephesians 4, walk in the way of love. Colossians 1. Colossians 2, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Peter 2, follow in his steps, 1 John, 2 John, and as I already read from Galatians 5, walk by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. So, hopefully... Move a little closer, you Can't hear me? Yeah. Even closer I'm going to take Marty's view, I think. I'll try to be a little louder. So hopefully you believe me by now. Sorry, Nate, if you can't see. Um, that walking is all over the Bible. <laughs> and hopefully you're with me that it is a rich metaphor at work throughout the scriptures. So what about its literal working out for us? What about taking actual walks, where we lace up or slip on our shoes, where we start swinging our legs and our arms, filling our lungs, attuning our eyes to the light and to oncoming traffic or dogs off leashes? Walking, in the literal kind of way, is so ordinary, so necessary. Once the big ta-da of our first steps no one ever really pays attention to how good of a walker you are. Even though, compared to other mammals, our walking capabilities come slowly and painfully. I just read, this really made me laugh today, a study that that was over decades that said, even 12 to 19 month old humans average 17 falls per hour. (laughs) (laughs) However, a foal, a newborn horse, typically walks within 90 minutes of being born. Baby giraffes, between 30 and 60 minutes. Iguanas can run as soon as they hatch. And wildebeests walk within minutes of their birth, as do pigs, alpacas, and camels. It takes humans a year, about. About unless you're really unique. (laughs) Our stacked spines, big brains, and dangly arms are pretty hard to manage. But the physical act of walking is considered basic to living a human life. If someone never starts walking, big questions start being asked. Examinations, tests, inquiries. You cannot just go on crawling for your whole life long. It doesn't work that way. And when someone loses the ability to walk, it is a huge loss. We all recognize that. We know that to walk is somehow connected to being human. While Ariel is beautiful as a mermaid, how happy are you when she finally gets her legs and wiggles her toes? (laughs) Literal walking is a wonderful gift from God. And it's not just fun. It's not just good exercise. Check out this quote from Dr. J.E. Manson from Harvard Medical School. She says, If there was a pill that people could take that would nearly cut in half the risk of stroke, diabetes, heart disease, reduce the risk of cognitive decline, depression, reduce stress, improve emotional well-being, everyone would be clamoring to take it. It would be flying off the shelf. But that pill, that magic potion really is available to everyone in the form of 30 minutes a day of brisk walking. (laughs) Aside from this impressive list of health benefits, walking is also a good teacher. And this is why I both practice and recommend it as a spiritual discipline. Listen to this. Rather lengthy quote from Mark Buchanan, again in his book, God Walk. Moving at the speed of your soul is the subtitle. It's long, but it's worth hearing. The seed of this book was annoyance, or grief, or something in between. I was annoyed, or grieved, or whatever it is that lies between that many spiritual traditions have a corresponding physical discipline, and Christianity has none. Hinduism has yoga, Taoism has Tai Chi, Shintoism has karate, Buddhism has kung fu, Confucianism has hakido, Sikhism has gatka, Christianity has nothing. <laughs> this is odd. <laughs> the very core of Christian faith is incarnation. God's coming among us, as one of us, to walk with us. Incarnation is Christianity's flesh and blood, and every part of Christian faith seeks embodiment, a way of being lived out here, now, in person. The Church has fought tenaciously against anything that contradicts this. The earliest, most noxious, and most persistent heresy of authentic Christian faith is Gnosticism Gnosticism says the body doesn't matter or worse, it's evil it's a thing to be despised, maybe used maybe indulged but eventually discarded it has no inherent value Gnosticism is incarnation's mortal enemy Christianity insists that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, walked Among us. And it insists that all words, all ideas, all theories, all theologies, all doctrines must become flesh and dwell among us. It calls us to walk out our faith, not just know it or speak it or argue it. So, it's odd that a faith so insistent on these things, a faith so inescapably incarnational, Never developed a matching physical discipline to help its followers yoke their faith to practice, body to mind, holiness to breath, thought to movement, the inward to the outward. Very odd. Except, did it? Did Christian faith have a corresponding physical discipline, then lost it? That's what I'm going to argue here. And I'm going to argue that this discipline is the oldest, and simplest practice around, it's walking. Did you just move the camera and then I moved again? Sorry. (laughs) Two big things I have found. My walks are teaching me. First, stick with me. Walking helps me to Know my place. Have you seen the new live action Mulan? (laughs) I know there's been some controversy around it, but we're not going to go there tonight. The imperative for Mulan at the beginning is to know her place. It is, of course, derogatory at first. Her place is as a woman in ancient China in the home Married advantageously, all dolled up, in makeup and very restrictive clothing, serving tea, and not making a ruckus. Invisible is what the town matchmaker says she needs to be. But as her true gifts become apparent and embarrassing to her family, she finds that her place is as a warrior in the army of the emperor. So, knowing her place transforms as the story unfolds. At first, it's meant to contain her, to keep her in her place. But by the end, she defies societal norms and her family's expectations. I'm giving it all away, but you probably know the story. I think she even defies the law, technically. But she finds her place, and that is celebrated, though it's changed. The phrase has changed a lot at that point. Walking can do something like this. (laughs) Stay with me. It probably won't turn you into a chi-mastered fighting machine who alone can protect the emperor from a band of warlords with a shape-shifting witch as their leader. (laughs) But it does, or it can remind you, of what and who you are. This is what I mean by knowing your place. Walking is such a simple, humble, equalizing activity. You can't really walk better than others. Stripped of your fancy or dingy car, you can meet others literally on common ground. You can remember your common humanity. Walking around a neighborhood or on trails in the woods or along the coast Or even through a city, can also remind you of how small you are. In Bill Bryson's famous book, Mm -hmm. Walk in the Woods, A Walk in the Woods, after a good amount of time spent on the Appalachian Trail, he wrote, I understand now, in a way I never did before, the colossal scale of the world. As houses and buildings, dangerous animals, weather and traffic loom large around you, your vulnerability becomes more apparent. This is why walking has become synonymous with the fear of the Lord for me. My husband, Dave, will be speaking more on the fear of the Lord next Friday night, so I'm not going to say too much here, but... Simply put, the fear of the Lord is about knowing your place. It's not derogatory or belittling, it's realistic. It's about having a sane and appropriate sense of who we are and who we are not. We are not God. We are not invincible. We are destructible, vulnerable. We are weak in the grand scheme of things and small. Break a toe, get nicked by a passing car, feel the mosquitoes descend as the sun goes down. All of these things can easily happen on a walk, and we are forced to reckon with how far we can actually travel on our own. It's not very far. How in need we are, how puny our reserves. Walking gives you perspective. It helps you remember how big the earth is, how out of our control life is, and it can work to humble you. This is the right posture before God, humbled. That's why walking is so much like the fear of the Lord. It helps you know your place, but in that, it also dignifies you. We're not meant to be invisible like Mulan was encouraged to be. It's not about recognizing, it's not only about recognizing your smallness in knowing your place before God. It's also knowing you're not nothing because you're small and vulnerable to thunderstorms and falling trees and speeding transport trucks. Each one of us is made in the image of God. We walk upright. Uniquely in creation. Do you know how fantastic the design of our bodies is just to enable us to walk? 100 million neurons coordinate to get up from a seated position. Your feet alone have 26 bones, 33 articulations which is something like joints, I found out, (laughs) 111 ligaments and over 20 muscles. Just straightening your spine and walking gives you a sense of being crowned with glory and honor, being invited to walk with God. This is also fear of the Lord. It's not making too much of yourself or too little. There's another kind of knowing your place Obviously that walking helps you find walking helps you to get to know your place, to get familiar with the plants that grow indigenously, the creatures that live in your rock wall or under your grass helps you get to know your neighbors, their pets, the change of the seasons, which tree starts to turn first in the fall, whose dogs are friendly when the ticks are at their worst where that pernicious patch of poison ivy is. (laughs) What's the name of that kind of butterfly that you keep seeing on the edge of the forest? How the sun peeks through that one empty lot at a certain time of day. Who has what political sign in their yard? Who keeps a garden? Who pays a landscaping service? And on and on it could go. This is the kind of knowing your place that walking also teaches you it literally places you the second thing and finally walking helps me to know my pace see how they rhyme know your place, know your pace I like that kind of thing although walking is humbling in general it's also humbling to feel like I'm shouting at all of you I'm sorry <laughs> It is also particularly humbling when we experience in our bodies the speed at which we can travel without the help of an engine. (laughs) At a walking pace, it's about three miles per hour. When we walk or we meander down the road, down the path, we are moving at something more like the speed of our souls, as Buchanan puts it. Things unfold slowly in life. It takes time to get to a new place internally, relationally, spiritually, and walking can help you embody this reality. It can help you to remember that there's no such thing as sudden Christ-likeness, as Dallas Willard puts it. God seems to work at something more akin to agricultural time or child-rearing time. He seems to work at walking speed. A Japanese pastor named Kosuke Koyama titled his book, Three Mile an Hour God. (laughs) (laughs) This is one of our major beefs in the life of faith. Why won't God just hurry up and... Fill in the blank, right? Bring me a spouse. Free me from this addiction. Change my child's heart. Take away my anger. Help me forgive. Get me that dream job. Bring me a bosom friend. Get me my big break as an artist. And on and on it could go. We don't like God's timing. We don't like his speed. So, walking can be a healing corrective to this tendency in all of us. Watch your street as you walk along. Take note of your pace. This is more the pace of change in your life and in the world. It's more like that than the speed of an app opening, or the speed of a text going through, or the speed of a fast food drive through as awesome as that is. (laughs) so these two knowing your place and knowing your pace can turn ordinary walks into spiritual practices you might find a scripture about the fear of the lord just one verse even write it out on a little piece of paper and take just that with you on a walk no phone just you and a passage about knowing your place before god Meditating on it, talking with God about it. You could take note of your surroundings. You can recognize the interconnectedness of creation as you walk. You can practice gratitude as you walk. Mark Buchanan recommends in this book, I'll mention it again because it's so good. It was almost so good that when I read it I was like, yeah. He said everything I wanted to say, but he said it better, (laughs) but I would strongly recommend it. At the end of each chapter, he has a literal walking recommendation, like take a walk and do this, an exercise, a practice at the end of each one. Dave and I were just talking the other night about how walking and praying, or we say we're going on a prayer walk, are some of the most powerful prayer times in our lives, Our bodies have a little something to do. It's slow. It's humble. But what a way to meet with God. Slowed down, humbled, but willing to engage, willing to move forward with your whole self. The truth is we are headed somewhere. We are all on a road. We're all on a pilgrimage. Walking offers you a wonderful space to consider that in your own mind, or with a friend, or in conversation with the God who walked in the first garden. I have shared in different settings um, my my own ongoing struggle with God's relationship to evil in the world, the problem of evil the questions that nag me perpetually. I have also shared how God has met me in those struggles and has given me hope and confidence and comfort as well as action to give myself to as I carry those questions to him. Particularly, God has met me in a couple books. Dan Allender's To Be Told and John Stackhouse's Can God Be Trusted. Both of these books spoke to God's obvious love for the process of maturing. This was incredibly helpful for me. Or as Allender puts it, the unfolding story of a human life. Walking is another way God has met me and taught me and healed broken parts in me. And it's related to those two books because walking has given me a sense of progression, of change, of potential for growth to practice little journeys on my walks around town or on various trails in Massachusetts, I have come to consider and trust in the bigger journey that God has me on and that he's with me in it. Jesus said that the kingdom of God is like a seed, like yeast. These things are tiny, but they can have massive effects. But it takes a while. Walking might seem like a small and simple activity, but I believe it can have massive effects. This motion, this is more the speed of growth in Christ. It's more the speed of God's work in the world. It's more the speed of the kingdom coming. So what grace to have this simple, readily available practice to be reoriented to our place, before God, and the pace of the kingdom come. Thank you.